Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson, here on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and now 101.9 in Manchester, New Hampshire. We are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening to this podcast, please subscribe. It helps us and it builds our listenership. So the 1992 Clinton presidential campaign made one political catchphrase quite famous, quote, it's the economy, stupid. The idea was that ultimately that's what voters really care about. Now fast forward to 2020 and that lesson was not lost on President-elect Biden. The theory of the Biden team was that if they could get COVID under control, they could get the economy growing again and a growing economy would solve the biggest problem on voters' minds and make everybody happy again. Once again, it was the economy, stupid. So if we sent a postcard from today back to the Biden team of a year ago and described how the economy is doing now, they would have been dancing in the streets. By the middle of 2021, there'd been so much growth that the country's economic output was back to where it had been before the pandemic. In October alone, the country created 531 plus jobs and set a record for the number of people leaving their jobs, which is a sign that people see a hot job market and want to take advantage of it. And they're right. Unemployment is down. Wages are up. And the average American is 50% more than their checking account today than they did two years ago. Businesses are happy. They're flush with cash. Consumer spending is surging. While the stock market was up 7% in October, capping off a strong year. But I think you all know the but that comes at the end of this. Inflation, which was up 6.2% in October, has made Americans feel terrible. They feel like the economy is terrible. 68% of Americans told Gallup in October that they thought the economy is getting worse. While the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey finds that Republicans feel worse about the economy than at the height of the Great Recession. So who's right? What's real? What's perception? Or is perception what creates economic reality? Is it imagination? Is it fantasy? What's a poor boy to do? Well, Harvard Kennedy School professor Jeffrey Frankel recently gave an interview to the Harvard Gazette where he tried to untangle some of this story. And we want to bring his expertise to everybody, not just Harvard types. So we invited him onto this show and we are delighted to have him here. Dr. Frankel is the James W. Harple Professor of Capital Formation and Growth at the Harvard Kennedy School. And most importantly for my co-host, Matt Robeson, he graduated from what Matt Robeson believes is the best undergraduate college in America, the Swarthmore College. So from one alumnus to another, Professor Frankel, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you, Congressman. That was quite a, quite a wind up. 
Very good well, to be with you. Well, it, it, we want to give people some context because we're facing a very thorny political atmosphere, one filled with thorns. So we're going to turn to you to help us understand what's going on with inflation right now. A couple of questions. First of all, why is inflation bad? After all, if if prices and wages are rising, is it a problem at all? And is the current rate of inflation especially by historic standards, uh, or there are there adjustments not only to the numbers and our thinking that we need to make? Well, those are all excellent questions. I'm I'm old enough to that, that my career started in the 1970s when people are, and people are drawing parallels from the current time to the 1970s. I think probably the late 1960s is a better parallel because that's when inflation had gotten up to five or six percent. I mean, as you you said in your intro, for the last 12 months, headline inflation is is just over six percent. We often take out the, the more volatile food and uh, energy components to get core inflation, which is just above four percent. But then the people's reaction is, wait a minute, that's what I pay the most attention to is, is food and gasoline. So inflation is 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 back up. We see, we're seeing, well, there's two things going on. First, when people say they feel bad about the economy in general, that in a sense is surprising because as you pointed out, the economy has done so well, we would never have predicted that we would over the last four uh, quarters, for example, that we would have the growth rate in GDP and the growth rate in employment. And once you, you cited all the right statistics, one of my uh, favorites is that the number of uh, job vacancies per unemployed worker is the highest it's ever been since they started keeping the, the records. And it, it is uh, a, a pattern that has been true in past recoveries that there's a, a lag. I mean, I, one hesitates to say that public is wrong because, you know, the customer is always right and the Harvard economists shouldn't tell the public what to think. But having said that, there is a pattern where perceptions lag behind the reality. So I remember when the first President Bush, with his recession, ended in 1991, and a few, few years when he was running for election, re-election, and, and subsequently, people didn't believe it. They thought we were still in recession, and that was even more true with the Great Recession, 2007 to 2009. People didn't believe that one. It was over until way, way into Obama's term. I think maybe Obama's second term was was it took before you got a majority of people. Uh, saying it, even though it even though it officially ended in uh, the second quarter of 2009. So there's a general point about the economy, and I I'll get to inflation in a minute, which is which is not the economy. The you might think that this is a real problem that people are so pessimistic because perceptions, as you alluded to, perceptions can drive reality. If people uh, have low consumer confidence, for example, which they seem to that matches the poll results, which says that they feel bad about the economy, you might think that they would uh, spend less, but that's not true at all. We're, GDP, as you mentioned, has reattained re the level before the pandemic. It hasn't reattained its previous upward trend from before the pandemic, but measures of the demand, real household uh, purchases, have have actually reattained their previous trend. They've been, they've been strong. The consumer is going like gangbusters which is very different. This is unusual historically, that people should feel bad about the economy and report that in polls at the same time that they're going out and spending like crazy. One, one possible answer is that people 
have reduced uh, confidence in, in President uh, Biden, and that that's driving their answers to the uh, to the poll numbers about the economy rather than the other way around. Uh, we usually we think of that, you know, people look at how well we're doing on the economy, it's stupid, and maybe it's a few other things. And then that's how they form their their uh, opinion of the president. But, but I think maybe we've gotten into such a politicized era that people use any occasion to vote for or against the the incumbent, whoever's in the in the White House. Now, should I talk more specifically about inflation, or did you want to? Yeah, let's let's talk about inflation because I, I think that's we I think we all agree that there is this divergence between the perception of what's going on in the economy and. The reality, which is that by every standard that economists like to measure, the economy is doing very well. But as you say, perceptions matter and people feel like inflation is a big factor in why the economy is not working for them. So let's get into that. There, there's been a lot of discussion about what's going on with inflation and specifically what's what's driving it. So is this about there's just a lot of demand chasing only a little bit of supply? Is this about supply chain problems? Is it about too much government spending? What, what is driving inflation? Well, there are a number of factors, and you sort of hit, hit on them. In a sense, this is a good problem to have. In, in the, when the coronavirus hit in uh, March of 2020, that uh, had a big crunch on, on supply. People stopped, uh, employment went way down, people stayed home. But at, at the same time, it had a big crunch on demand, uh, roughly uh, equal. In the recovery, we've had both supply and demand come back pretty, pretty strong, but we've had demand come back much stronger than supply. And uh, initially, that was in part because of uh, very easy monetary and fiscal policy. So the, the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates low and using a, a zero and, and using a, what we call unconventional monetary policy to further drive the monetary stimulus. And then fiscal policy, first under Donald Trump and, and then under Joe Biden, we have had very large fiscal stimulus, which you know I think was appropriate given how how low the how, how far down the economy is was the the trough of the recession was the worst it was fairly brief that we were down there but it was the worst I think that we've ever seen in terms of the decline in employment or or output so those those that's, that spending was initially a good thing but we're sort of the victim of our own success supply has not come back as strongly the economy has run into its capacity constraints and I think its capacity constraints are roughly speaking, where, where they were before the pandemic. But, but in the meantime, we expect steady growth. And there's still, the economy is below the previous trend, below what economists call potential output, I think. And, and that is because of the famous blocked ports and tangled supply chains and uh, shortage of, of uh, semiconductors and, and the rest of that. And, and the workers of the very, all the measures of employment, they all look good except for one, which is the labor force and participation rates. In other words, uh, not, uh, 2 million workers are, are not looking for jobs and, and are not employed and not looking for jobs. Some of that's retirement, but some of it is uh, is COVID, that they don't want to go back to risky jobs or they're rethinking what, what they want to do, or childcare is keeping them uh, from entering and re-entering the labor force. Anyway, I think all those um, 
supply constraints that I mentioned are, are going to go away. They're all temporary. So that I, I think that supply will come back up to meet demand and we can continue growing without rising inflation. So, uh, you know, I was in Congress during the Great Recession. I got elected in 2006. I arrived in Congress and was um, sent to the Financial Services Committee, not because I knew anything about money. And I, my, my, my joke always was, I, I'm no economist. I just play one on television. And I really am no economist and never was. Luckily, Robeson knew a little bit about the economy and what economists do. And I got there and saw That's what this. a Swarthmore education will do yeah, for you. That's right. And, and you know, I mean, I, I remember sitting early in the committee and trying to figure out how all these financial institutions worked and who was regulating them, if anybody, and why they weren't talking to each other and, and the, what the chair of the Federal Reserve did and why and what he had in mind and why everything seemed so rosy just before the union know what hit the fan and clearly one of you know as, as you've as we've said the key job of the federal reserve or one of them is to keep inflation under control and balance it with economic growth and right now there seems to be an imbalance do, do you think that the fed is going to get more aggressive about inflation are there things they can do in the short term to have an impact and what do you what's your take on President Biden retaining Jerome Powell to be the chair? So um, the Fed, which has control of monetary policy, uh, clearly was uh, overly optimistic on in inflation, meaning that they thought it would not go up very much and that it would go up only transitorily. and they they were they were wrong about that. And therefore they were wrong in predicting their own behavior. They didn't expect to begin tapering as early as November, and they didn't expect to be raising a policy interest rate anytime in 2022. But despite that misprediction, I think their actual actions have been, have been on target because they did in their most recent meeting earlier this month announce a beginning of tapering. In other words, a reduction of the rate per month that they, they, they buy uh, bonds and put, pump more money into the economy. And at the current, at the rate that they announced, they should be finished uh, tapering. In other words, finish the period of monetary easing in the middle of uh, next year, 2022. And then presumably if, the, if things are still going so strong, uh, start raising uh, interest rates around then. So I think that's about right that uh, up until recently, the whole problem was output and, and the strength of the economy, and now inflation starts to be a problem. And so they're reacting as they should. Now, one might think that the fact that they started tapering well before what they thought they would, had predicted for themselves, you might think that would have caught the markets by surprise and the stock market would have crashed, in which case, if you've got money in stocks, you're unhappy. Not the Fed's job to, to make the stock market investors happy. But nevertheless, the, my, my point is that didn't happen. They didn't, they had, the Fed had already adequately signaled their uh, revision in their, in their forecasts and had uh, signaled that they were uh, uh, likely to begin tapering in, in, in November. And so I think that's gone on, on track on pretty smoothly. As to whether President Biden should reappoint Jay Powell, the leading candidates are Jay Powell is the obvious one, and there is a tradition of reappointing 
your the the existing Fed Fed chairman, even if, as in this case, he or she was appointed by a president of the opposite party. That is kind of the tradition. The the summer rooting for for Lael Brainerd, who's a member of the other Fed governor. And who has uh, they? They both had they've had similar positions on the rate of monetary expansion, but she's considered a little more liberal on, for example, particularly financial regulation. Full and we have breaking news that actually President Biden has opted to retain Chairman Powell. Oh, I see. Oh, well, thank you. Do you, do you. Do you anticipate much impact from that decision? It, it sounds like they both have a similar approach when it comes to fighting inflation. Well, first, let me say full disclosure, I've known both Jay Powell and Leo Brainerd for more than 30 years and consider them both friends, but either one of them would have been excellent. Interesting question is to watch is because they, they were very similar on their monetary policy orientation, so there aren't great implications for that. It'll be interesting to see what happens on financial regulation. Leo Brainerd has been uh, a little bit more aggressive, and I think appropriately so, on on strengthening or continuing the measures that were passed after the global financial crisis to reduce the chance that'll happen again. And Jay Powell, along with the majority, has has in some ways voted to loosen the regulation. But there, there's this position of uh, vice chairman for financial uh, regulation, which has been held by a fellow named Randy Quarles, who is very, very good, but for my money, a little too uh, light on the regulation, a little too fast on the deregulation. Interesting question is whether Lael Brainerd will be elevated from the governor to vice chairman for financial regulation. I think that would sort of please a lot of people. Also, it's not that clear that Jay Powell is is a, is a, is an anti-regulation person himself. He sort of deferred to, to to quarrels. So anyway, all in all, I think the Fed is on a on a pretty good track. Pressure is rising clearly on President Biden, and you could see it in some of his actions of the recent week. He has announced some investigative steps when it comes to price gouging and. He's considering tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, America's extra tank of gas, as it were, to see if we can ease off on gas prices. Now, for our radio listeners, I had in my voice there the same kind of eye roll reaction that our guest, Dr. Frankel, I think just had to these moves from President Biden. This is sort of the standard operating playbook of presidents when you're in an inflationary environment to say, well, we're going to go after price gougers. We're going to try and bring down gas prices. Really, Dr. Frankel, is there anything that presidents can do? Is there anything that President Biden should be doing, excuse me, in the short term to try to control inflation? There's there's a, a few things. Given the the role of the blockages in the ports and all that, the, he has reached out to try to facilitate longer hours and a smoother process in in in, in the trans, transportation and logistics. And uh, there's a limit, of course, to what a president can do there. But I think he has done it. Now, the, you haven't asked me about the price of gasoline yet, but that's uh, where there's a lot of sensitivity. You did ask me why people are so averse to inflation. Maybe, maybe we can come back to that. But part of it is that. Uh, the price of gasoline has gone up more than almost anything else. And it's it's the single most politically sensitive variable. I learned that during my time in government. It's the one thing that that the polls of pop, you know, popularity rating the president actually react to on a weekly basis. And uh, because people not just fill up their car all frequently, but see the signs posted with the prices. And the president cannot do a whole lot about the, the price of uh, gasoline, which is now back up to the levels that it was in 2011 to 12, 13, 14, which was higher than it, than, than 
before and after that. One thing I would say the president should not do is ask uh, OPEC to cut, uh, cut its oil output, and to, uh, which is what uh, Donald Trump did in April 2020 to help thinking he was going to help out uh, U.S. Uh, oil producers, uh, the frackers in particular. And he, he he threatened Saudi Arabia with pulling out U.S. troops. They, they took it pretty seriously. And shortly thereafter, the OPEC had a, agreed on production cuts. I'm not sure whether those are still still in effect. Two things that I think that I am in favor of, and any economist would be, well, any, any right-thinking person I think would be in favor of the first one, which is further vaccination would increase increase the supply of labor. I, I'm, I'm aware that a substantial fraction of the American public is still skeptical about vaccines, but all I can say is I don't agree and <laughs> experts don't agree. Um, that's interesting. So what you're saying is, if we could actually, that's a dot that I don't think a lot of people have connected, which is if we could bring vaccination rates up, that would increase the supply of labor, that would put downward pressure on wages, and that would put downward pressure on prices. So in a way, success on COVID vaccination could have a direct impact on inflation. Absolutely. I mean, the most important economic policy at the, this year is, uh, and last year was policy with regard to the pandemic, and specifically the route map that you were saying, that is what I had in mind, that if the kids can go back to school and stay in school, then people, then the parents can go to work. Workers will be I mean, we hear a lot about the vaccine-hesitant workers who might quit their jobs if they're forced by a vaccine mandate, whether it's imposed by their company or by the government. But I have in mind all the there are some of those, few of those, but there are more people who are worried about their uh, health and about catching COVID on the job. And if, you, if an employer can provide relatively close to COVID-free uh, workplace, uh, that should increase uh, labor supply. So that, those are some of the ways that uh, vaccination could increase supply and alleviate inflation. Can I just interrupt for a second? So Please. if we're talking about, we've been, you know, we've been sort of on this knife edge of perception and reality and uh, drivers of inflation. Why, why, isn't, why isn't the public making the connection and why aren't they being helped to make the connection between inflation, economic, the their feelings about the economy, and what's really going on with COVID? Because I haven't heard anybody, I mean, your explanation is absolutely clear and right on, but I haven't heard anybody really in the political sphere making the argument as clearly as you have just made it, which would seem to me to be a pretty interesting approach in the political realm to use the economic reality of what COVID has done and will do and why vaccination is important for the economy, but nobody seems to be picking up on that. Is What can we do to spread your message? Well, I'm glad uh, in that case that we're doing it on your radio show. I think a lot of politicians are afraid of the backlash from the, the, the skeptics, and we've been told that uh, lecturing lecturing them and citing expertise and citing science isn't the way to get them to change their uh, position. And so, and, and I don't know whether saying that this is leaping on the, leaping on the inflation horse, anti-inflation horse is a, is a effective way of uh, convincing them, but it's, it's true. It's, it's probably the most important thing that that's under control that I don't know if it's under the government's control. I don't know what more Joe Biden could do or, or other leaders to, 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 to explain that, that uh, when you get vaccinated, you 
greatly reduce not just your own risk of sickness and death, but that of uh, people around you. You know, it's interesting because Robeson and I uh, do a lot of talking about politics and what the what the state of play is and where things are going. And it's clear, I think, that inflation is going to be a political football in the coming year if it stays relatively high over uh, a good part of the next 12 months. It's likely to be sort of at the very top of the issues that drive the public debate going into the midterm elections when Frankly, Democrats face tough prospects anyway, and in an inflationary uh, cycle, that those headwinds are even stronger. Because Republicans are going to argue that the American Rescue Plan, the infrastructure bill, the big back better, build back better spending are are the cause of inflation. You Democrats, it's just more tax and spend. You're spending our taxpayers' money. You're going to drive inflation. Democrats, of course, will argue the opposite because if if all of them listen to our radio show, they'll now understand a different approach. But basically, Democrats are set to argue, wait a second, we're going to relieve the infrastructure bottlenecks at the ports, and we're going to get people child care coverage, and that's going to allow people to get back to work. So it sounds like you'd say, well, I don't think either one is right. It's it's COVID, people. COVID, COVID is, the, is the key to both perception and reality. Am I, am I getting that right? Well, they said COVID had drove the downturn economically in the second quarter, beginning in March, in the second quarter of 2020. And it's the, 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 what, we, what we thought was its vanquishment, its defeat, the hands of this miracle, the, the, the development of effective vaccines within a year that which is which has been halfway successful or two thirds of the way successful. Talking about the fraction of people who are made the decision to get vaccinated, that that, that that's driven the recovery. So in a sense, it's all about COVID. But it, it, it the recovery is also driven by the fiscal uh, spending, which, as I said, was under President Trump in 2020. And uh, when Joe Biden first came in, uh, he had another another stimulus targeted at families with children, low income families with children, and, and so on. Now, you can't blame the current inflation or the inflation that's happened uh, over the last uh, few quarters on Biden's uh, legislation, which only passed last week, and namely the uh, infrastructure bill or the Build Back Better bill, which has got the social spending, which has not yet been passed by the Senate. It's been passed by the House. And those, those are for the future. Uh, some might say it's going to be inflationary. It's going to worsen the inflation. But I think that's wrong for a few reasons. One is it's if it's passed as proposed, it's fully paid for by raising taxes, which of course Republicans don't like, and by by just giving the IRS a bit more resources by which they could use to to collect a lot more of legally owned taxes, owed taxes that are not currently paid. And maybe Republicans are opposed to collecting taxes that are legally owed, but I don't think most people are opposed to that and some other things too it's spread over 10 years so that that it's not it's a bit of a red herring to talk about the build back better the social spending as a major contributor of of inflation but anyway yes uh, i think the covid and the vaccine uh, are obviously very important for our health and the horrendous death rate that we've uh, experienced but they're also important for the economy well just to follow up on this 
question of perceptions versus reality. I mean, look, as much as I, I think I got the greatest education in economics in the world that's worth more college, which I did, it was a little light at the time, which is a depressingly long time ago, on behavioral economics, on the, the fact that people don't make all kinds of rational evaluations of the economy. They make all kinds of biased evaluations of the economy. And we're really seeing that right now with this divergence between perceptions and reality. You mentioned a moment ago, gas prices. Now it is true that they're up about 50% over where they were one year ago. But as recently as 2018, and even in the spring of 2019, they were just about as high as they are now. And as you alluded to, there was a four-year period between 2010 and 2014, where they were even higher than they are now. So if this were 2015, or if this were the second half of 2019, we'd be feeling like prices were going down. Same deal with food prices. If you look at the region that our radio listeners are in right now, where the Bureau of Labor, anyway, when the government looks at inflation and they, they go out and they buy things, what you're seeing is food prices have gone up. They've gone up about 3.8% in this region, but most of that is restaurant food. That's about 10%. Prices for food at home have actually gone down half a percent. And yet, if you talk to people, which we do on this radio show, you find that they will swear up and down, no, 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 prices are skyrocketing at the grocery store. So as an economist, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you think about and kind of process and, and manage the fact that you can have such a divergence between perceptions and what we can measure? Does that, does that difference matter? Does that change sort of what you prescribe economically because perceptions seem to drive so much of our, of our economic reality. One of the differences between perceptions and the economic reality is, which you're alluding to, is that people have a, are a bit more scared of inflation than quite makes sense. I think said one reason for that is because the gasoline prices have gone up the most and they're, are the most, are, that's the most salient. But I mentioned the 1970s. I, I can remember the pattern in the 1970s, which we're seeing again already, that a common way of people talking about it and news, the news media talking about it is I got a raise, my salary went up, and that was all eaten away by inflation, and which is Another way of saying that is, you could say it is you're you're neither better off nor worse off because of inflation. Your real wages, the amount of that you can buy with your with your wages, are the, the same. But people sort of think that they they've earned their wage increase, which they have, particularly at the lower end of the uh, of the wage structure. And by the way, it's good for a change. The lower end of the wage structure are, are getting bigger wage increases are getting getting ahead of inflation, not all workers, but at the, on average, the lower income, at the lower levels, their wages are increasing faster than prices are. But they 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 sort of imagine that if they if there wasn't for inflation, they'd still get to those wage increases in dollar terms, but they just wouldn't have to pay more for, for um, food and all the other necessities of, of life. And, you know, some, some prices have gone down in relative terms or even absolute terms, clothing, for, for example, some, some manufacturers. Inflation is a problem, of course. It's mainly a problem because it, if it gets built into expectations, if you get caught in a wage price spiral, which is what happened in the 1970s, 
and can't live with it forever. I mean, some countries have tried to live with it a long, long time, and some of them even have managed to grow strongly during that during that period. But, but basically, eventually, you're going to have to go through a period of, of bringing the inflation back down. And the way we did it was in the, Paul Volcker, when he was chairman of the Fed, slammed on the brakes, raised interest rates in 1980 and 81, 82, and caused what then was the worst recession since the 1930s as a way that was ultimately successful of bringing inflation back down. So I think that's part, that's part of the sensible reason to be, to be afraid of inflation, that, it, that if it gets built into your, to the to expectations and built into everything, that will, it'll be like some sharp-toothed dog biting you that uh, you could ignore it for a while, but it, you, no matter how you shake your foot, it doesn't go away. So let me, let me make sure I understand what you're saying, because because you're an economist and I'm not. So are you saying that if people expect inflation and they put pressure on employers to raise wages to match the, match their expectation of inflation, and then the businesses raise the prices to make up for the higher wages they are paying so that consumers are paying higher prices so that the businesses can pay the employers the higher wages they're demanding, that inflation then can become a self-fulfilling prophecy and that, that it can spiral out of, out, of, out of control requiring draconian measures. I mean, um, do we want to see uh, 12 percentage you know, 12, 12 point interest rates again, in order to stamp out inflation, which would cause more economic havoc. Is that what we're talking about here? Well, a short answer to that is yes, that, that that's a fear. I said, I don't think, or I, I should have said, I don't think we're back in the 1970s again, or at least not, not yet. Well, we are sort of back in the late 1960s when Vietnam War spending was uh, social spending with, without raising taxes to pay for it. An easy monetary policy did cause inflation to rise uh, to, the, let's say, 5%, didn't close to the current level. It need not have gotten so entrenched, and we need not have uh, gotten the higher, even higher inflation rates of the 1970s, let alone the 12% interest rates of 1981, 82 that you referred to, except I think uh, that our leaders, our policymakers made some serious mistakes in the late 60s and early 70s. And I, I don't think that they're going to, that our current leaders are, are going to repeat those mistakes. I have in mind, to some extent, the big increase in spending in the late 60s without being willing to raise taxes to pay for it as one mistake. But even more, I have in mind in 1971, when Richard Nixon, as president, was preparing to run for re-election, he, together with the chairman of the Fed at the time, Arthur Burns, adopted this strategy of rapid growth of the money supply, even though inflation was already high, in order to, to get unemployment lower and to get growth strong, to, to make people think the economy was improving, which it was, but to get to get reelected as if he needed help doing that on one by a landslide, of course. But and at the same time, to deal with the infl inflationary effects that you normally would expect from such rapid demand-led growth and such rapid money creation, they put on wage price controls. It was a Republican president is the only one in my lifetime who's put on uh, any sort of wage price controls. And that succeeded in keeping the lid on inflation like a boiling pot. It succeeded in keeping the lid on for, for a year, couple of years, but eventually the, 
thing exploded and we ended up with higher inflation than we had before. I don't think either the, the White House or the Federal Reserve is going to repeat the, those mistakes. So we only have a couple of minutes left, but I did want to follow up on that thought. As, as you alluded to, there was this attempt to sort of engineer economic growth to drive people's perceptions of the economy for political purposes in 1971. And now you have a new president who today who would very much like people's perceptions of economic reality to sort of catch up to most of what our economic reality is, which is pretty good. So I guess the question is, is there anything that would actually achieve the effect of having people shake this perception, this negative perception about the economy and have it catch up to reality? Or have our economic views, as you suggested a few minutes ago, become so anchored by our political views that there's really no set of economic conditions that convince Democrats that a Trump economy is good or Republicans that a Biden economy is good? Well, I, it's not my field. I'm not a political scientist. I'm an economist. And I, 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 if any temptation to forecast the political trends, I've given up you know, over the last 20 years. So many things have happened that I never would have dreamed in a million years could happen in, in presidential politics. But I basically think uh, that what your last alternative was, uh, was the right one, that we've become very politicized. And when people answer poll questions about whether they're happy about the economy or they're, or they're upset about inflation, I, I, my, my instinct is they answer according to whether they like the incumbent who's in, sitting in the White House as an as a opportunity to express their opinion. I'd like to see polls conducted in such a way that you first give the respondent plenty of opportunity to vent to his or her pleasure or displeasure with the person in the White House, and then you ask them what you think they think about the economy. That that does sound like, and actually we've talked on this show before about some of the difficulties of polling and how much how much, I actually wrote an article about this recently, how much those perceptions can change in the course of a poll based on wording and how you prime things. And I, I think it goes to the exact same point that you're making, which is that people's perceptions, maybe we have unreliable narrators here. Maybe what we're telling pollsters and, and public opinion surveys and confidence surveys isn't really reflective of reality. On the other hand, at the end of the day, what does it really matter? If we could talk till we're blue in the face about how great the top line economic numbers are. At the end of the day, the economy is just made up of people's individual perceptions and individual economic decisions. It sounds like there's not a heck of a lot we can do to affect that. And on that kind of somber note, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for walking us through all of this. Harvard Kennedy School professor Jeffrey Frankel, who is an absolute expert on inflation. Thanks so much for joining Beyond Politics. Well, thank you for having me. 